Welcome to Life Without Secrets. Do you often find yourself comparing your life to your friends on social media? You see the glamour, the success, the perfect family, the perfect kids, the awesome vacations. But what's really behind the highlight reel? In Life Without Secrets, we are going to dive deep and reveal the secrets, struggles, and strategies people have used in real life to get to who they are now and who they are becoming. Because the truth is, nobody is perfect, and you are never alone in what you're going through. So don't forget to subscribe to the show, because it's time to connect on a deeper level and grow together. Welcome back to another empowering episode of Life Without Secrets, where we dive into the stories of incredible individuals who have overcome adversity and emerged stronger than ever, discovering how they reignited their hearts and rediscovered themselves, their passion, and their purpose. Today, we have the honor of welcoming a truly inspiring guest, Charles Phillips, to our show. Charles is an author, coach, school counselor, and the host of I Am Conquering Mountains podcast. In his book, Conquering Mountains, Charles opens up about his personal struggles. From a childhood marked by trauma and instability to facing anxiety in college, Charles has faced setbacks and challenges that would test anyone's resolve. But Charles didn't let those struggles define him. Instead, he transformed them into the stepping stones on his path to success and fulfillment. He is the first male in his entire family to graduate from college, purchase a home, and achieve a master's degree in school counseling. His story is powerful reminder that with courage, determination, and self-compassion, we can conquer any mountain that stands in our way. Charles, thanks so much for coming on with us today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on here. I love what you do. I love how you take your story. And not only is it your story itself inspiring, but you also take your story and impact so many young people. And, you know, you, you are a school counselor for, you said, sixth to eighth graders. Yes. We were just talking before that and I'm like, wow, that is like a really powerful time. I mean, that was like the time in my life where things started coming to the surface. So that's a lot for you to take on. I love how you serve that age group. The world is full of three types of people, those who've been through it, those who are going through it, and those who are about to go through it. And I feel like me being a person, what drove me to want to be a school counselor is, you know, the, the struggles that I had to endure growing up and the challenges that I had to face and still be able to keep pushing and go through those things, but also to conquer a lot of those mountains that I had to endure to provide some breadcrumbs and blaze a trail for those who come after me. So now as I work with today's young people, especially at that middle school age, because that's one of the toughest times in life for a kid, you know, there's a lot of changes that they're going through. And that's like the second that that adolescent age is where the brain is going through its second largest stage of development. You know, there's birth to three years where the brain is like a sponge. And then that adolescent age where they're, you know, 12 to 14 or 15 years old, where the brain is now like a sponge again. And they're learning things that they used to like, they no longer like and vice versa. And, you know, their hormones are coming into play and things of that nature. And they're worried about, especially like in today's climate with all of the social media, where as far as like when, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't really have social media. You know, you didn't hear about someone's, you know, embarrassing moment until you got to school the next day and nobody captured it on video and things of that nature. So I think that a lot of those things, in addition to the trauma that kids go through, it just amplifies that stress a lot more. So I always want to tell my kids that you might can't control what you go through, but you control the outcome. 
which means you can control how you go through it and you control whether or not you make it through. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so important for young people to learn that as soon as possible, right? And those are really, like you said, when those first struggles start coming out. And so it's such a such an important time frame. And I love what you do. About can you take us back to the beginning and tell us a little bit about your journey? What was it like growing up for you, the challenges you face, and how did those contribute to what you do now? Yeah. So like my struggles have been with a lot, a lot of the struggles I endured were, were mental health related from anxiety, depression. Um, and I've been diagnosed in the past couple of years with PTSD from a lot of the trauma that I endured as a kid. And a lot of those struggles came from childhood trauma, you know, domestic violence, parents fighting, fussing, arguing, stuff like that. Um, moving multiple times, never having a, a place to settle and call home. We moved 18 times by the time I was 18. 23, by the time I was 23 graduating college, it was like well into the 30s. I can start naming addresses and things and I'll get to about 20 or 22 before I start slowing down. And, you know, poverty, dealing with lack of food, shutoffs and things of that nature, um, where the lights were getting cut off and things like that. Um, And my struggles with mental health started, and I talk about this in my book, the first chapter of my book is called The Night Fear and Anxiety Came Into My Life. And this is when I was about six years old and we were living in a two bedroom townhouse and uh, I was downstairs in the living room and I was playing and I started to hear my father yelling and screaming and cursing. Um, So I would peek, step up, walk up the steps, you know, back then we're taught like, don't be minding grown folks business. So I didn't want to get caught listening or peeking around the corner, so I would sneak up the steps. When you peeked around the corner, you look straight into my parents' bedroom. I remember seeing my sister sitting on, and my sister was about four years older than me. She was sitting on the bed, and she had like a breakfast tray uh, in her lap, and her head was down, but she looked terrified. And my father was towering over my mother in the corner of the bedroom, and she's like pinned in the corner, and there's like this big dresser there as a nightstand, and she can't get around my father. My mother is like 5'1", 5'2", 100 pounds, soaking wet. My father's a whole foot taller. So he's like 6'2". The heaviest I believe he was at one point was like 270. So it's like this giant is in towering over her. And um, I would peek around the corner, see what was going on. And I couldn't quite understand what was happening. So I would run back down the steps because I didn't want to get caught and get in trouble. And I had to do that about three or four times. And I'll say about the fourth time I came back down the steps, as soon as I stepped down into the living room, I hear this loud pop. And it it was so loud, it sounded like a gunshot went off. And it kind of like echoed through the apartment. And then my sisters, I hear my sister screaming, Daddy, no, Daddy, no, stop, stop. And I'm looking up the steps, trying to figure out what's going on. And my sister's coming down, she's crying. Uh, my dad leaves and storms out the door. My mother starts cleaning the house and stuff. And then I kind of put two and two together that my father just slapped my mother. And that must have been the sound that I heard. And then I remember that night just being, you know, angry at my dad, upset, but but excessively fearful of my dad after that. Because I didn't I never wanted that anger aimed at me. I didn't want to feel that that type of power because to me, my dad was a giant. You know, six years old, he's like six two, six three, big guy. But uh, and I never wanted that anger aimed at me. Um, 
But three years later, after a little league baseball game, it was. And we were we were leaving a little league game, and I could never hit in little league baseball. Like I couldn't hit to save my life. I could play defense. I could pitch. I could field. I could do all of that stuff. I could dive and catch the ball, throw it. I had an arm like a cannon. But hitting was just not for me. <laughs> I think I got, like, traumatized because the first time I bat, I got hit by pitch. But <laughs> And then after that, it was like I was scared to get in the batter's box. So then, like, I had, and my dad always found a way to be one of my coaches. So he ended up becoming an assistant coach. So then I had that battle in my mind where do I talk to him like a coach? Do I respond to him like my dad and stuff like that? So that was a struggle. And my dad was kind of a bit of a bully. Um, And one game we had lost to a team we shouldn't have lost to. We got beat bad, and I played the worst game I, I have ever played. And uh, getting in the car, my dad is like ripping me a new one. He's screaming at me. He's cussing at me. He's uh, hitting the stern wheel every time he talks. He's slamming his fist on the dashboard. And I'm getting terrified. You know, this anxiety is building up because the last time I seen him get this angry was the night he hit my mother. And I didn't want that aimed at me. So I felt trapped in the car um, because the, we had a two-door front Thunderbird. And the dry, the passenger side door where I'm sitting doesn't open. It's like sealed shut. So at first I was thinking like, okay, when it gets to red, like I'm going to jump out the car. But I couldn't because the door wouldn't open. And then as we're driving, he's just getting like amplified and more intense and more angry and yelling more and more. And I'm like, I got to say something to get him to calm down. And I ended up saying something like, Dad, I just couldn't get a hit. And you know how, like, in the movies, you, there's, like, all of this action, and then all of a sudden something happens, it's, like, radio silence. And I remember for, like, two seconds, it was complete quiet, like the, the eye of a hurricane. And next thing I know, I see my dad's hand flying towards my face and hitting me. And after that, that just amplified that anxiety even more. And it took a real toll on me because then I, I wasn't just afraid of my father. I was afraid of anybody's reaction. And I became ex- excessively anxious. And this is at an age where I, that middle school age, right, where, so I was about nine or 10 at that time. And then worrying about trying to keep, stay on my father's good side. Cause you know, with an abuser, the person that they're abusing often wants to stay on their good side so they don't get abused. So I, w- I became like very apologetic, you know, not just with my dad, but with people in general. I started getting super worried about people's uh, thoughts about me, what they thought about me, their reactions toward me. If I made them mad, you know, I apologize for things that really weren't my fault. Um, but because that person was upset, I would still apologize and try to make them not be mad at me. Um, and it just took, uh, it, it, it took me for a turn for, a wor- for the worse, you know, for a long time. I became very just fearful of life, and that did a lot of damage to me being able to build successful relationships with people. You know, I didn't have a lot of friends because I was afraid of communicating with people and saying the wrong thing being embarrassed and things like that. I didn't have like, you know, talking to girls was just out of the picture because I would like, if I went to go and talk to a girl, my heart felt like it was about to explode and burst out of my chest. 
Um, so it just did a lot of psychological damage there. Um, yeah. So if you could go, if you could go back, mm-hmm. you know, because you now as a school counselor, mm-hmm. what would you tell yourself now? Like, or what would you tell yourself as that little boy in maybe when you got to middle school and having that anxiety and not wanting to talk to people, not wanting to make mm-hmm. new friends, finding yourself in these situation where your anxiety is just increasing and really you're isolating, you're lacking connection, I'm assuming. Right. What would you tell yourself in those moments? Like if there was a little boy that was going through the same thing, what would you tell him? It's interesting because I, I would tell myself that it's called anxiety. Now go tell your parents to take you to a doctor. Because in my house, especially in a in a in a black household, mental health isn't talked about that much. We're taught to just pray about it and it'll be okay. But even like even me as a minister, prayer isn't the only thing you're supposed to do. Once you pray, you're supposed to act and try to fulfill those things that you're asking God for, you know? So, and mean, I didn't know what anxiety was. You know, I thought that there was something wrong with me where I couldn't calm myself down from this heightened level of anxiety. I would really just tell myself, hey, it's called anxiety. This is what's happening. This is why it's happening. Tell your parents to go and take you to the doctor to see someone. Because they would take me to the doctor for like, if I had a headache or if I got injured or if I was sick physically, but I was really sick mentally and just not knowing what it was that was causing this excessive amount of fear where I couldn't control it, um, where I couldn't bring myself to a calm state, it, it's, it, it adds a little fuel to the fire. You know, it, it kind of is even more traumatic. I would say oftentimes it can be add trauma to the trauma that you've experienced because you're trying to cool your engines down, you're trying to keep your cool, but you literally can't, you know, and that's what I would tell my younger self. You said you moved a lot. Did you get to stay in the same school at all or did you have to change schools each time as well? So in elementary school, I changed schools every time we moved. Um, So we would move like every year to two years. So I didn't have a place where I'd say, oh, well, that's where I grew up at. The place that I say I grew up at is the place that I spent the most amount of years, and that was three um, years that I lived in a, in one house. And that probably added a lot to the anxiety as well, too, especially like having to move for the reasons that we move. And most of the times it was because we uh, couldn't afford the rent. We were getting evicted. We would either move before the eviction came or move before or after we got evicted, which is a whole nother monster there because you're getting your stuff put out, but the whole neighborhood is watching. And then, you know, the thing I hate about evictions the most is that after the eviction, they put that yellow notice on your door and it says eviction. So when you're going to school the next day, like my friends would come to knock on the door to see if I can come outside. And they see this big yellow notice on the door that says eviction. And then they would come to school and they would ask me like, did y'all get evicted? And I would say, yeah. And then they would start laughing about it. So then that was another issue there where I'm now trying to figure out how I'm going to navigate school and navigate this situation that everybody knows about now, the whole neighborhood knows. So when we would have to move, I would have to reestablish a new friend group, get to know new people, move to a new school. So like the whole safe haven that I would have created for myself no longer exists because now I have to reestablish myself in this other community. 
And then having to continuously do that over and over and over again, I just kind of like went into a shell and just said, I'm going to be by myself and not worry about trying to reacclimate myself into a new community. And it got so bad to the point where I stopped taking my stuff out of like, we would, a lot of times when we move, we had to move in a hurry to, before the, the marshal and the movers and the um, uh, landlord would come to put us out. So my mother would wake us up very early in the morning because usually they serve the eviction early in the morning to get you before you can get anywhere. And my mother would come into the room six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, hand me a trash bag and say like, whatever you want, what you don't want people to touch, put it in the bag. So then all of our stuff would be in trash bags. All of our clothes, shoes, things like that would be in trash bags. And then once we, I think probably once I got into like eighth grade, I just stopped taking my stuff out the trash bag. Because I knew eventually we're going to have to move again and we're going to be in the same situation. So I would just leave it in a trash bag, take out what I needed, wash what I needed, put it back in the trash bag. Because um, I just felt like eventually we're going to have to, I knew we were going to have to move again. Which sucked because you want to give your kids a place, you know, a, a place they can call home. Yeah, and stability. Right. And those things didn't exist. So tell me about, like, when you were entering adulthood, what did that look like? Yeah, so, like, there was college. College was fun, but also hard as well, too, because... It, it, it was great to get away because I went to school out of state. I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, uh, and I went to school in North Carolina, um, a small school called St. Andrews. And that's where I played college basketball at. And is that how you got into college? Did you get recruited or what? how did that happen? Yeah. yeah so my, my all-time goal was when I was growing up, especially in those middle school years, I remember we were living in a home that my uncle owned and he was renting it out to us. And I was about 13 years old, and I went into my parents' bedroom. And my dad must have been watching basketball because college basketball was on the TV. And I remember, and that's how I fell in love with Kansas University and their basketball program. And they were playing on TV, and uh, the game was was hype. It was live. It was the best thing I had ever seen. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And I remember asking my dad, like, what is this? I was at first I was thinking like it was the NBA, but then it, it was teams that I hadn't seen before. And he was like, that's college basketball. And I just remember like being in awe. It was like love at first sight. I was like, that's what I want to do. And that's what caused me to have tunnel vision. Regardless of whatever I was going through, I was not going to mess up my opportunities to play college basketball. As I was coming out of high school, I hadn't been recruited. The coach that coached me in high school actually coached at the college that I went to. Um, before he came to my high school, he found out they had a tryout. Me and like four players went. They wanted all of us, but only two of us ended up going. Um, and it was the best decision I ever made in my life. And I would highly recommend it for any young person that is seeking to uh, uh, go to college or trying to figure out a path to go on your own. Definitely, I would recommend going into the college route because it's a great experience. It's a great way to network. For sports yeah, sports and also academics as well, too. Um, so if anybody is looking for that, I definitely would recommend it. Um, but going into college, it was kind of bittersweet because it was a break away from the struggles that I was going through at home. I got to get away, you know, 
I hate to say this, but I got to get away from my father for a little bit. I got to get away from the constant moving and the the lights getting cut off and the lack of food in the refrigerator to a place where no one's coming to put me out. Uh, I have a meal each day, at least three each day in an environment that is productive for my well-being. Um, but then it was kind of like abnormal at the same time because it was not something that I was used to. You know, I was not used to no one coming to cut the lights off. I wasn't used to anyone. Structure. Right. Structure. I wasn't used to that. So it was kind of anxiety provoking at the same time. Were you still worried about like how it was going to fail or what was going to go wrong during that time? Absolutely. I remember like two or three days before I actually, my parents drove me up to the college to drop me off. I was terrified of going and I almost said I don't want to go because I felt like everything else we've tried to do has failed. This is going to fail, but this is my dream and I don't want this to fail. So, you know, with anxiety, you have a lot of work avoidance. So I started to, those two or three days before, I almost changed my mind about going, um, which would have been a bad decision. Um, But still not knowing that I had social anxiety disorder or PTSD and things of that nature. Um, So I went in to college and I remember the first party I went to and I had my first drink. And that is when I became a borderline alcoholic because it calmed me, it soothed the anxiety, and I was able to not worry about what people thought about me, what people were saying about me. I was able to just be in the moment. And after I took that first drink, I continued to drink and drink and more and more and more um, to where I, I think I was an alcoholic um, because I, especially when I turned 21, I was going to the liquor store every night. If I couldn't get to the liquor store, I was going to the gas station to get something. You were soothing those wounds and kind of drowning out the pain that you carried and the anxiety that you had. Absolutely, which is like a temporary fix, you know, to a long-term problem. And really, like, you know, with alcoholism, it's like, well, what, what, is, what is the relationship there with the alcohol, right? Like, are you using alcohol as an escape like you were? Or is this like, you know, some people can just like have one drink and, you know, every once in a while and that's all they need because they're not using it as an escape or to get a change in mindset. So this was something that was um, kind of a crutch for you, it sounds like. And it caused me to get into a lot of fights back then, too, when I got into college. Almost got put out of school twice when I first got there. And then my um, went to school for five years, my fifth year being there, um, almost got put out for fighting a teammate. And we got into a tussle. Things weren't bad, but then he left, went to his room, and then I took off following. But I was completely intoxicated at that time. So just having that alcohol was, like you said, it was masking the real problem. It wasn't until I got out of college and moved to Maryland with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, where I started to listen to her tell me, hey, you need to go and talk to someone about the anxiety. I have to ask, because you were kind of avoidant with the whole girl situation. Was it the alcohol that gave you the liquid courage that asked your the girlfriend out? Or how did we get there? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it was, it was funny. Like, 
we but we both played basketball in college, so we were kind of traveling in the same traveling together because we both both teams would play the same schools the same day, so we would travel to the games together. So we were kind of around each other, and then like the basketball team all hung out together. Guys and girls would hang out together whenever we had a party. We all would be together. So we started hanging out, and then my roommate and her and her roommate would always hang out, but she didn't know I liked her. Yeah, that decreases the pressure a little bit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they always had food and I was always hungry. So I'd always go over there and get something to eat. She would laugh and joke. And then she would always talk about the type of girl I was going to marry. And I was like, like, I like you. Like, I finally ended up asking her, asking her out. And she shut me down and she said she had a boyfriend. And I was like, uh. And eventually... They broke up after about, I think, like a year or whatnot. And then she and I started hanging out. I always say, like, she courted me first because she saw me standing outside my dorm room when she was going to pick up her her pizza. And she had pizza and wings. I think they had, like, messed up her order or something. And she saw me. She said, hey, Charles, do you want some pizza and wings? They messed up my order. And then I went over to her room. And that was the best night I had, like, just being in a, a place where I didn't, where I could let my guard down, you know. And that's when I kind of started to make a shift. You know, I would hang out with her more and my confidence would start growing. Um, I could put my guard down. I stopped drinking. I started drinking less and less being around her um, because I felt like I didn't need it as much. But then coming out of college uh, and then when I moved to Maryland, that's when she had noticed like me having some struggles with anxiety and how my behavior was when I would get really anxious. I would get very argumentative and defensive. And she was like, hey, you need to go and see someone. And then I was like, no, I don't need to go see someone. I'm okay. It's going to be all right. And then um, one day we were going to the mall and they had this new fast food restaurant open called Charlie's. And it's like a sub, it's a Philly cheesesteak place. So you order at one end, you pick up at the other end. Oops. I don't like when people are like moving around me and doing stuff behind me and people are reaching over me to grab condiments and stuff and people are doing stuff behind me and I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, I got to get out of here. And my wife is the type of person where she has to get the condiments from the restaurant. You know, if we go to Chick-fil-A and she wants barbecue sauce, she has to get the barbecue sauce from the, from that Chick-fil-A. She, it just doesn't taste right if she gets, I can get barbecue sauce at home, but it, for her, it's got to come from the restaurant. So we get our food and then I'm making like a beeline towards the door because I'm like, I got to get out of here. And then she's like, oh, I forgot to get ketchup. And I like have a complete meltdown. What? You got to get ketchup? Why do we got to get ketchup? I got to get out of here. We got to go. And then she like put her arm around me. She went and got her ketchup though. She went and got her ketchup and then she put her arm around me and then we walked out and she was like, that's what I'm talking about. And she was like, you have some struggles with anxiety. You have some things that's happened in your childhood, but you need to go and talk to someone about your anxiety. And that's when I made the decision to go to therapy. Cool. So that was kind of the turning point there. And I love that, you know, because it could have been like you're triggered already, right? And then she could have got triggered from something, but instead she was like that person you really needed in that moment to put a mirror in front of you you know, and ask yourself those deeper questions and seek help. Absolutely. Like she's been the biggest blessing in my life and navigating through this journey. You know, if I can go back to when we 
first met or when we first started dating, I was contemplating suicide. You know, I didn't want to, I couldn't figure out the anxiety thing. I couldn't figure out why I was so fearful and I didn't want to live with that anymore. So I started contemplating um, suicide or taking my own life. I didn't really necessarily want to die. I just wanted that pain to end, you know, and oftentimes I feel like that's the case with a lot of people when it comes to suicide, that if this situation was better, then suicide wouldn't be on their mind. Um, but because they don't see no way out, then sometimes they take that route. And I had started contemplating suicide. We had went up to, uh, me and some of the basketball guys had went up to the roof of the dorm one night. We had climbed up the ladder, went on top of the roof, and I had kind of a fear of heights. So I remember looking over the ledge and jumping back and then looking over again. I was like, all of that fear could end right now if I just fell over. And I remember just standing on the ledge and wanting to, like a, a strong wind to blow and or me trying to come back and trip up and fall over. Uh, but I just remember just not really wanting to live anymore with that amount of anxiety. But once I um, started going to therapy, started learning about what anxiety was and learning about how the traumatic experiences I, I endured as a child, how that had impacted me, um, that's when I started making a complete change. Sounds like the first step in counseling that helped you better understand it is just being aware of it, aware of aware of what it, anxiety was, aware of you know how your childhood was impacting you now. What other ways would you say that counseling helped you better understand and manage your anxiety? I would say it helped me to analyze, kind of look at where I was and compare that to where I wanted to be. You know, I think a lot of times when we look at trying to conquer any mountain or trying to overcome any struggle that we're going through, you know, the first thing we often have to do is look at how is this impacting us? Is this the way we want this to impact us? And how do we get to where we want to be? And I think you also have to envision yourself in crossing that finish line. You know, if you can't envision, for example, like I'm on this bodybuilding journey, I'm trying to get back in shape, trying to lose the dad bod, all that kind of stuff, build my muscles back up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, but if I can't envision myself crossing that stage, shrinking the gut, building the abs, building the muscles, doing the workouts, if I can't envision myself at the finish line, then I'll never get there. You know, so I think therapy is something that helps you to, some people call it backwards mapping where you set the goal and that's the goal, that's the finish line that you want to accomplish regardless of what it is. Um, and then you go back and you trace the steps to help you get there and you find yourself at the starting point and then you go back and work through the steps to get you to the goal. Um, and I think therapy is something that helps to do that where you see where you are, you're there for a reason to talk, to look through some of those things that are impacting you, but then where is it that you're trying to get to? You know, for me, I wanted to be able to live a life where anxiety was not in control. You know, I wanted to be able to stand up and give a speech and not have to rock side and side or have this painful anxiety piercing in my heart where I felt like my heart was going to burst out of my chest. You know, I wanted to be able to socialize with people and not feeling like I needed to escape before I even got to the event. You know, so and I knew for my education career or for my career being a school counselor, I was going to have to overcome a lot of that in order to work with today's young people. 
And I love how you're talking about you want to be in those situations and not have the anxiety, but you're not saying that anxiety is going to be gone for your, from your life because I don't think that is ever going to be a thing for anybody. There's a scale, right, of like where anxiety is, but, you know, stress and anxiety are unfortunately just a part of our lives. And, you know, there's always going to be situations where we're going to be faced with that. So I love how when you're talking about those goals, it's not like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, overcome anxiety necessarily. You're just going to learn these tools to deal with it. So what are some practical steps that you took to face your fears, to build this resilience, to conquer those mountains, and then reignite your heart during these during some challenging times? Right. So I think like when it comes to, you know, overcoming stuff like anxiety, you know, I think first you have to realize it's going to take some time. Like it's, you, you have to be patient and you're going to have to endure some of those struggles. I look at it as like construction. You know, when you think about building a building or building a tower, the first thing you have to do is dig deep. You know, you got to go down before you come up. You know, so to lay that solid foundation that you can stand on, you have to go down. Anything that is going to go up has to go down first. You know, you think about uh, plants and people sowing seeds. The first thing that's going to happen is our roots are going to go down before the plant can grow up. You know, and the bigger the tree, the deeper the roots. You know, so I think that's the first thing we have to think about is how deep are we willing to go to make sure we lay this solid foundation um, that we can build upon because everything that goes from here on up is where everything's going to stand on that, that solid foundation. So I think that's the first step. Everybody needs to go back and listen to that. I think that was so powerful what you just said and such a great analogy that everybody can relate to. I think a lot of times people in general, you know, we look at the task at hand and a lot of times people get deterred from the task because not that they don't want to see the outcome, but the journey in between is something that keeps them from accomplishing those goals. Like, for instance, I talked about like being in fitness and stuff like that. And a lot of times people, the thing that I hear trainers saying, turn people away from getting in shape or getting in the shape they want to is the journey in between. You know, they see where they are. They know where they want to be. But then when you think about all the work you got to do to put in to get there, changing your eating habits, eating on a schedule, cutting out the, the milk and cookies and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> the cakes and the ice cream and stuff like Dang that, and, right? <laughs> and disciplining ourselves, it, it's, that's the struggle. You know, when you think about being in anxiety, you have to discipline yourself because you, you can't allow it to deter you from the goal at hand. You know, for example, I want to do public speaking. You know, and I want to be one of the top public speakers in the world where I'm motivating people and encouraging people and igniting people to change their heart and to move forward and things of that nature. But that's going to take some groundwork to do. And then the question comes, like, are you willing to discipline yourself enough to get there? You know, so I think those are some of the things that uh, people have to consider when they're looking at overcoming a lot of the hardships that they've endured. Did you go from college to being a school counselor? And did you recognize the um, the similarities? Like, was it you found your purpose and you were applying what you had gone into what you do? Or when did you connect those dots? So when I first went to college, I had no clue what I wanted to study. I just knew I wanted to play college basketball. So I spent like the first year and a half 
like the freshman year, they say we just like explore classes. And then your sophomore year, you're supposed to pick your major or whatnot. And I did some exploring and then I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do, I'll be a PE teacher. Cause I knew I wanted to be in the school system. I knew I wanted to work with kids. I just didn't know to what capacity. And then I ended up taking a um, intro to psych class in my sophomore year of college. And then I fell in love with it because we were talking about how the brain works. We were talking about how kids develop and what challenges they face when they're trying to develop. And I was like, okay, that's what I want to study. So I started studying psychology uh, or I changed my major and started studying psychology second half of my sophomore year. But I wasn't a great student. So I was failing a lot of classes because I had all of this like stress and anxiety and trying to play basketball and focusing on that. I ended up having to get a major in interdisciplinary studies with a concentration in sports and mental well-being. Sounds fancy, but it was a way for me to still graduate. It sounds uh, right up your alley. It does. <laughs> it is. It is. My um, academic advisor ended up finding that for me. Um, I had to give like a presentation for the major and stuff like that. So it ended up working out because I ended up being able to graduate. And then after I graduated in 2010, 20, January of 2011 is when I moved to Maryland to be with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. She found out a, a substitute position because she knew I wanted to be in the school system at the high school that she went to. I ended up flying up and getting hired in like a week. So when I moved to Maryland, I had nothing. I had the clothes I had on, a suit for the interview, and a duffel bag full of underwear. And that was all I brought with me. I started out being a substitute teacher, and then I found that they had these positions called student advocates. And these are people who kind of monitor the hallways. They are like the frontline individuals who are working with building relationships with kids and they're mediating between teachers and students when there's an issue in the classroom. I said, I want to do that because I feel like that would be a great segue into school counseling. So then I did that for about four or five years while I was studying my counseling degree. And then I transitioned into being a school counselor in 2017. Now, did you feel like in doing that, in reaching those kids, you were also healing your inner child absolutely like I felt like that was a way for me to help a lot of the kids come to an and, and parents as well come to an understanding very early on like I often tell my kids who know that they have anxiety that you're in a much better place than I was when I found out when I found out I was about 27 you know so I was well into adulthood trying to figure out life you're at 13, 14, 15 years old, understanding how your life is impacting you now is going to better your future in the long run. And you getting a hold and learning those tools now, nothing's going to be able to stop you when you become an adult. And do you feel like what you went through better prepared you for what you do? I think it made me more empathetic uh, for what our young people go through. Um, because they're in an age where a lot of our kids, they go through some things that many of us adults don't have to endure. You know, oh, and I, Especially I work, nowadays. Yes, especially mm -hmm. since COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, you know, loss of parents, loss of siblings, uh, sex abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence, uh, neglect and things of that nature. They go through a lot and then they have to come to school a few hours after the event. You know, so you may have a kid that was abused the night before or got hit by their parent that morning or witnessed their 
their mother being beaten or their father having to leave or getting a divorce or whatnot, but they still have to come to school and then function throughout the day. But I don't think it's always taken into consideration what this kid had to endure. They may even be causing them to act up in the classroom. You know, so I think that my struggles helped me to be a little bit more considerate that what this kid is going through may be impacting them more than we realize. You have a better awareness too, I feel like. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's made me empathetic, made me more aware, and it made me more, because I feel like the best people to learn from are people that have been through it, you know, and as someone who has endured it, when I, and I often will do some self-disclosing in my sessions with, with my kids, and, right, and they'll have like an aha moment, because oftentimes people will tell me I don't look like what I've been through, I don't think I look like what I've been through. Uh, but when I tell people, they're like, you went through what? And I'm like, yeah, so this is what happened to me. The same thing that's going on with you. Here's what I did. Here's some resources. And let's build and connect. And let's check in next week and see how you're doing. It makes you more relatable. And it makes kids buy into you a little bit more as well, too. So how do you continue to stay motivated and maintain a positive outlook even during difficult times today? Yeah, so like my faith is a huge factor in my life. Um, my mother always kept me in church. Um, me being a minister, I've, I've had a chance to read a lot of the scriptures that tells us not to be anxious for anything, um, like Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Um, I get to read how God has always provided ways for you to succeed, that he won't put too much on you that you can't bear. So I know when there's a challenge in my life, I know I can endure it. And I know I'm going to make it out of it. Um, a lot of times people, and I used to do this, why me, why me? Now I just ask God, like, what do I need to learn in this struggle to better equip me for the next one? Because every struggle is to prepare you for the next one. You know, so every storm that we go through, it's always going to prepare us for the next storm. In that storm, we're going to gain the tools that we need to prepare us for the next one. So something that keeps me grounded and motivated and encouraged to keep pushing through no matter what I'm going through is understanding that. Uh, or looking at my past victories. You know, I will often look at things that I'm going through now and say, okay, well, I've been through this. Here's what I did. Let me apply some of those learned lessons to this situation. Or And oftentimes, like, that anxiety will come up. Like you said, it won't go away. You know, you'll get to learn how to manage it better. It'll maybe lighten um, in certain cases. And I often tell my kids, like, anxiety is like an alarm system. You go in your home, you turn, the alarm is on, it's going to ring. But if you're in your home and someone, or the alarm is set and nobody's there and somebody tries to kick the door in, it's going to ring like a fire engine. So there's different levels of intensity of that anxiety uh, where some people may get more anxious than others in certain situations. Some people may get less anxious in certain situations, but it's not, not going to never be there. Um, but we can learn how to manage it a lot more. I think like for me, when I'm faced with like a similar situation that I've maybe not not the same situation, but something that, you know, kind of brings on back those emotions. I kind of like take a second and look in the mirror and I'm like, okay, I have made it through this, this, and this. Like, like you got this. You know, like, do you ever feel like you're like, I am so, like, I've made it through this. Like, I'm strong. Like, I can do this. Like, it gives you getting through those mountains or like also build your confidence in the end to like overcome that next challenge. Right. That's why I think like self-affirmations are so powerful, you know, because sometimes we do have to give ourselves that positive self-talk 
because the doubt will creep in and we'll start saying like, oh, this is too big. This is too much. I can't do it. And then we got to be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I went through this. I went through that. I went through this. I overcame that. And this is nothing compared to all of that stuff that I went through. If people can, especially today's young people, if they can see that what they've already been through and how they're still standing, how they're still conquering those mountains and they're still overcoming those things, it makes it much more easier to go through some of the challenges that you have to face. I like to think of it like past victories. When you look at your past victories, it makes the present a lot much more easier to, to go through. So what message do you hope listeners take away from your story? I hope listeners take away that you might can't control the obstacles you go through, but you control the outcome. And if you control the outcome, you control how you go through the obstacles you're going through. And just continue to keep pushing, regardless of how bad it hurts, regardless of how bad it may make you feel, regardless of how hard it might be, or how many times you're you're, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of going through the same old struggles. Continue to keep pushing because one day you are going to make it out and you're going to be at the peak of that mountain. You're going to be able to look back at all that you have accomplished and not just looking back. You're going to be able to reach back and pull other people up with you. And that's something that I want to make sure that I do uh, with my platform, with the work that I do as a counselor and as a minister, with my podcast, Yeah, I'm Conquering Mountains podcast as well, and reaching back and helping to pull people up um, so that other people get to experience that same joy of being at the peak of their mountains as well. So well said. How can people connect with you? So I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Um, I do have a community called the I Am Conquering Mountains community on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram by the same name, um, I Am Conquering Mountains. I do have the new threads from Instagram as well, Twitter <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, how many more can we get? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> My phone's going ding, 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 ding. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to visit my website, it is betheoutcome.org. Watch my mini documentary um, and get, look at my blog. You can see some of the past episodes that I've had from my first season. Um, and also say stay tuned for my second season of the I Am Conquering Mountains podcast, where we're focused on conquering childhood trauma, where we are going to have the one most wonderful host, Miss Jillian, on the show. Aww, I'm so <laughs> excited. That's going to be so fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Charles, for sharing such an incredible story with us. You are full of resilience and healing and growth. And I love what you're doing with everything that you've been through. Your message is seriously making a difference in so many lives. So everybody keep pushing through and keep conquering those mountains. Yes. Sir. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Life Without Secrets. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.